All right. So I am going to read us through the ch uh, chapter 5 of 2 Samuel. Then all the tribes of Israel went to David at Hebron and told him, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, when Saul was our king, you were the only one who really led the forces of Israel. And the Lord told you, You will be the shepherd of my people Israel. You will be Israel's leader. So there at Hebron, King David made a covenant before the Lord with all the elders of Israel. And they anointed him king of Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in all. He reigned over Judah from Hebron for seven years and six months, and from Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. David then led his men to Jerusalem to fight against the Jebusites, the original inhabitants of the land who were living there. The Jebusites taunted David, saying, You will never get in here. Even the blind and lame could keep you out. For the Jebusites thought they were safe. But David captured the fortress of Zion, which is now called the city of David. On the day of the attack, David said to his troops, I hate those lame and blind Jebusites. Whoever attacks them should strike by going into the city through the water tunnel. That is the origin of the saying, the blind and the lame may not enter the house. So David made the fortress his home, and he called it the city of David. He extended the city starting at the supporting terraces and working inward. And David became more and more powerful because the Lord God of heaven's armies was with him. The king of Hiram and Tyre sent messages to David along with cedar, timber, and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built David a palace. And David realized that the Lord had confirmed him as king over Israel and had blessed his kingdom for the sake of, the of his people Israel. After moving from Hebron to Jerusalem, David married more concubines and wives, and they had more sons and daughters. These are the names of David's sons who were born in Jerusalem. Shammua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ebar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishma, Eliada, and Eliphalet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king of Israel, they mobilized all their forces to capture him. But David was told they were coming, so he went into the stronghold. The Philistines arrived and, sp and spread out across the valley of Rephaim. So David asked the Lord, Should I go out to fight the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? The Lord replied, David, Yes, go ahead. I will certainly hand them over to you. So David went to Baal Pirzan and defeated the Philistines there. The Lord did it. David exclaimed, He burst through my enemies like a raging flood. So he named the place Baal Pirzim, which means the Lord who burst through. The Philistines had abandoned their idols there, so David and his men confiscated them. But after a while, the Philistines returned and again spread out across the valley of Rephaim. And, David, and again, David asked the Lord what to do. Do not attack them straight on, the Lord replied. Instead, circle around behind and attack them near the, po the popular, tree or popular trees. When you hear a sound like marching feet in the tops of the poplar trees, be on the alert. That, that will be the signal that the Lord is moving ahead of you to strike down the Philistine army. So David did what the Lord commanded, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from 
Gibeon to Gezar. Okay, thank you. Hey, everybody. Um, we've been going through the life of David on Sunday mornings, and today we finally come to an event that we've seemed to be waiting for for a long time. If, if you've been in the study with us, this has been a long time coming. This is David's third anointing. He was anointed three times. One was privately by Samuel, um, and it launched him into a phase of his life of becoming or going from obscurity to great fame. It's when he slayed Goliath and he was working for Saul and he was leading armies in and out on behalf of Saul and he became really this living legend in the land. Um, that phase also led into Saul's jealousy, Saul trying to kill him in his own house, chasing David into the wilderness and eventually chasing David into exile into Philistine territory. And then Saul and Jonathan died on, uh, at um, the, the Battle of Gilboa, and David goes to Hebron and for his second anointing over the tribe of Judah. And then there's a seven-year, seven-and-a-half-year campaign to unite north and south. Um, the tribes of Israel were united under Saul's living son, Ishbosheth, um, placed there by Abner the general. <clears throat> and so there's this division. Um, David's employing both military and diplomatic tactics to try to get the unity in the, in the, uh, between Israel. And here we come finally to the third anointing of King David, where he is now anointed king over all a united nation, over all 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, from this point forward, um, from, chapter, from this chapter to chapter 10, we're going to see David's triumph. And really, because of that, the triumph of the entire nation of Israel. This is the glory days we're going to get into. Um, Israel becomes a prominent and established nation on the world scene under King David because of his anointing, because of his prowess. But today we get to look at, at a few things that um, I you might say, is the secret to his success. David is by no means a perfect leader. Uh, you probably mentioned or saw, and it probably alarmed you, that ominous reference to David taking on more concubines and more wives. That will come back to bite him in the end. That's a character flaw that will really wreak a lot of havoc. Um, but he's, He's, you know, David is a wonderful character in the Bible because he, he's so human. He's both beautiful and broken. He's good and he's got some real uh, issues going on in his heart. I think we can all relate to that, can't we? So, um, we've been looking at David. We finally come to what we've been looking for. This is the final anointing. Um, and from... And we can see here in the first five verses that the elder anointed him because the elders anointed him because he had three critical qualifications that they noticed. Number one, he said, they said, what? He's one of us. He's, he's bone of our bones. He's flesh of our flesh. He is one of us. This fulfills the law of Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, Moses said, when you select a king, he's got to be He's got to be Hebrew. He's got to be one of us. He's got to be of our, of our nation. Secondly, though, they notice that he's a proven leader. He's competent. They've seen him in action. He used to, under Saul, lead out the armies successfully to fight the Philistines, the 
kind of arch nemesis of Israel at the time, David successfully um, would lead out men. He could lead, a, he could lead people, and he could lead them well. Um, not to mention, which, this, which they don't mention, not to mention his time running from Saul as a crucial proving ground to, who, to his leadership. He had the opportunity, you remember, to kill Saul twice. This speaks to a very good part of his character. He could have killed Saul twice and ended this whole charade, but instead he stays his hand, he lets God do it, and he comes, he comes upon the kingdom honestly. But none of these things really matter uh, if you don't have the third qualification that they mentioned, right? None of them really matter. The third qualification is the Lord appointed you to be the shepherd of Israel. That's the biggest deal. The other two are great, but they're not much without God being with, with David. And so finally, who Israel wants to be their king finally matches who God wants to be their king. Remember, they wanted a king back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, I think. Give us a king like all the other nations. And that, was the, that part right there was the problem. God was good with the king part, but like all the other nations, that was the part God's like, no, 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 I'm going to give you a king that's after my own heart. I'm going to give you a king that follows me and that leads you in the ways that I want, that I want you to be led. Um, king Saul started out well, but his heart went south. His character, uh, his character problems consumed him. And finally, we have David, a man after God's own heart, and the people are on board. So, um, today, we see that David is described, did you notice, his kingship is described as being a shepherd. That's what I want to focus on a little bit today. God's um, leadership model, you could say. He says to kings, he says to leaders, he says to people with influence, he says to pastors, he says to leaders, I want you to lead the way a shepherd leads his flock. We sang the song earlier today, a song of David, God is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He, he makes me rest in fields of green. He, he leads me beside still waters. Even though I walk through chaos and the, this world of death, he is with me. His rod and his staff comfort me. David really understood this. That is, a king rules like a shepherd. Now, it was very common for folks in the ancient Near East to refer to their leaders as shepherds. It was an agrarian society. Shepherding was, part, uh, was a very visual model of leadership to them. But it would have been, had special significance to David since that's the occupation that he had when God called him to lead. Um, Psalm 78 says this, God chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ooze, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with a skillful hand. So there's this correlation going on between whatever skills David acquired when he was shepherding, those skills transferred nicely into the larger task of being a king and of, of kinging. But what in particular did shepherds do that corresponded so well to the leadership model that God so clearly wants for his leaders. That's what I want to ask us today. What is it about shepherding that God says, 
that's transferable to leading people. How does that work? Well, according to Ezekiel chapter 34, there's a lot about shepherding in there. I want to offer you at least three things that I can see in there. Ezekiel in chapter 34, he says shepherds, and he is referring to the leaders of Israel in that chapter. Number one, he says they provide for sheep. Shepherds provide. They feed them, right? They lead them to water. They provide for their basic needs so that the sheep can flourish. The sheep can be healthy and happy and um, can grow. Secondly, a shepherd, according to Ezekiel, is to protect the sheep and to heal sheep. Shepherds, and we know David at his own testimony said that he, he did this. When a bear or a wolf or a coyote or something would come up against the flock, it was David who would stand up to them in the name of the Lord and would ward them off, would grab the lion by the mane and kill it. And of course, he went into the same kind of confidence, transferred his first victory over Goliath. He used those same, that same mindset, those same skills. So there's this transference there of protection, um, provision. Thirdly, though, Ezekiel says that they led the sheep. In other words, a leader, he, they knew where the sheep were supposed to go. Sheep, by definition, do not know where they're supposed to go. This is the Bible's well-meaning insult to you and me. <laughs> if God is the shepherd, we are sheep. We don't, without sheep, so they tell me, I'm a city boy, I don't really know much about sheep, but if you read about them, they will, you will find out quickly that they are the one animal that will die without supervision. Horses will be fine for a bit. Cows will be, they kind of know their way back home and, and so forth. A, a sheep, you leave it alone, it will die. It doesn't know, in fact, I was reading a, a couple of different, um, I don't know what you'd call them, blogs or articles from sheep, from shepherds in England Sheep don't know good food versus bad food. They will eat, if they go to a wrong field, they'll eat something they're not supposed to eat and they'll get bloated with gas and they'll, they'll explode or something. They'll pop. They pop and they die. So a shepherd, can't, doesn't, a shepherd needs to know what field to lead them to. They also need to know what part of the stream to lead them to because sheep will just run into a fast-moving stream and, and flow away and die from it. Okay? So a shepherd knows where to go. He knows where the sheep will fit best. He knows where he fits in the great scheme of things, and he knows where the sheep fit. They don't know. He knows, and so he leads them. And that's the idea. Well, in today's passage, we see that David, the king shepherd of, God, of God's people, the shepherd king, he goes about and he accomplishes these three things, but he does it in, in, um, in a few different ways. In two ways, I, would, I think. Maybe three ways. We'll explore that a little bit. Um, these three things are the core to his leadership, the core to his success, and we see it from the very beginning. Like I said, he's not a perfect guy. He's got some issues, but he did so great because of these three things. Today we're going to see that David provides, protects, and leads God's people because, number one, he's a man of prayer. He's a man of prayer. He's dependent on God. He protects and leads and provides for his people also because he's a man of God's word. He knows the scriptures. I'm hoping to prove that to you today. 
And finally, he understands what power is for. He's there. His power is to be used to give power to others for other people's flourishing, not to take. He doesn't exploit the weak with his power to take more. He gives for his nation. Okay? Those are the three ways that he does the three things that a shepherd does. He provides for them. He's going to provide a capital city for them. He's going to provide a political capital, a capital for them. He's going to provide a religious capital for them. He leads them. He knows where Israel fits on the redemptive scene of history. And he knows where he fits within that scheme. And he, he um, also protects them. He rids the land. This is the final this is the, the final, kind of the nail in the coffin for the Philistines. This is it. They become, up to this point, they've been the majority and Israel's been the minority. They've been the bullies and Israel has been the, 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 the you know, barely surviving. That's going to flip now. Israel's going to become the majority. The Philistines are going to be all but stamped out at this point under David. He's going to protect his people. Okay. He's a man of prayer. He's a man of God's word, and he's selfless. David can lead the people, and because of this, he can lead the people with confidence. Number one, he's a man of prayer. Let's start in the back of the passage. The author is mindful to show us that David's defeat over all of Israel's enemies, over the Philistines, is, listen, is because not that he has an army. It is not because he has more technology it is not because he is a good general although he is the author is very clear to tell us that his victory comes from prayer did you notice it said it twice before every battle before every battle he initiated battle with prayer he inquired of the lord should i do this that's really important. That's really, really important. And it might seem lost on us because, to be frank, we don't really hold prayer as that important. And what I mean by that is that I don't mean that we don't pray. But I mean we certainly don't think of it in our culture as the means of our power and our success. Today, we also face many stubborn enemies, do we not? Philistine-like enemies in our lives, both within us and without. We have personal issues that we deal with, these that we seem to be on our heels, and the Philistine within us seems to be bigger than us, just hanging on for survival. And also without, with our culture, the way our neighbors think, the different things that we're dealing with geopolitically, maybe things within our jobs in that context, maybe things within our family. And if there, if there uh, anything to be done about them, or should I, I just ask, is there anything that we can do about them? Is there some, is there one thing? We always, you know, I, people come to me as a pastor like I'm their Google search. What do I do about this? They're looking for the, the, they're looking for the pill. How do I heal my marriage? Um, what book, do you have any books to recommend? You know? Um, I struggle with this. What can, you know, can you be my accountability partner? Can you do this? Can you do that? They're looking for kind of a one-stop shop that will be powerful enough to deal with these enemies in their, in their lives. If we, um, if we polled Christians today, what is the number one 
thing that Christians do, the number one thing that Christians do to fight the enemies or the problems in their lives, no doubt we would get, a ver- we would get varied responses. And probably maybe even some good ones. We'd say community. We'd say, um, you know, going to church, reading the Bible, all those types of things. But one response, though, I think that would be in particularly predictably short supply would be prayer. And here's what I, again, I don't mean that the poll would show that Christians do not pray. That's not, what, that's not what I'm trying to argue. But rather that we don't view prayer as the central, central and essential act that keeps us centered and victorious in our lives. I don't think we would view it as the main weapon that we have against the enemies in our lives. We would probably name a whole host of other things and books and those types of things. But prayer, I don't think, would be at the top of the list. I really don't. Um, But what if we extended our poll to our ancestors? Um, G.K. Chesterton, this is where I got this idea. G.K. Chesterton said, um, he said, what did he say? He said, discipline, religious discipline, is the only true democracy he goes, because in it, our ancestors get a vote. If we were, if we were to only pull poll the Christians that are actually on their feet in this particular moment in time, the answer of prayer might be a minority. But what if we were, you know, G- Chesterton said, let's get the cemeteries involved with this. <laughs> let's go a little deeper than this. And if you did that, and if you, if you read through church history, you would find prayer on the ballot would be an overwhelming response. Christians before us and Christian leaders before us thought of prayer as the uh, strongest weapon that we have. And David would, of course, be be one of these. He penned many of the Psalms, the prayer book of the Bible, came from his heart and from his prayers. For the majority of Christian centuries, most Christians were convinced that prayer is the central and essential act For one, maintaining Christian identity. What was the song that, uh, did you notice it shift in the the air when we sang it? What was our, it's dealing with our identity. He knows my name. I have a maker. I felt the room go a little deeper into God's presence when we got that song going because we were, it engaged our minds. I have a maker. He formed my heart. Before even time began, Oh, he's in control. My life is in his hands. I have a father. He calls me his own. He'll never leave me, no matter where I go. That's, that comes from reciting who God is in prayers and psalms as directed to God in times of worship. Um, and secondly, not just maintaining Christian identity, but continually gaining ground like David did over one's own life, over the skeletons in our closet, over the things that we struggle with. Prayer has been that idea. Well, what's changed over the years? That's what I want to ask. If you survey church history, Christians of old have been saying prayer, 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 prayer. It's only the last few centuries um, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries on that prayer has began to dim into the scenes. The last century, 
um, experienced a radical overhaul in what I would say biblical history. I mean, actually, there's a lot of things I could give you reasons for prayer. I actually did some research, and there, it's not a one-shot answer. But this is the one that I think directly has to do with David. I think this is pertinent to our study when it comes to David. And one is, we've experienced a radical overhaul when it comes to the subject of biblical history. In our scholarship in the West, biblical history has been revised. And not just biblical history, but the way folks view history in general changed significantly in the West in the wake of the Enlightenment of the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, led by guys like Kant in Germany, Voltaire in France, Gibbon in England, these kind of learned, well-learned thinkers, there was this great surge of curiosity during the Enlightenment and enthusiasm to, uh, for everything earthy and everything human, coupled with a very overt, marked aversion of anything supernatural heavenly or divine in other words they'd basically said we've had enough of this medieval myth of angels and demons and supernatural forces that's we've been there done that we're tired of that what matters is the minds and bodies of humans us anthropology that's what matters. In other words, how do we think and behave and what have we actually done in history as verified by empirical evidence? And that became the mindset, the mantra, the goal of the Enlightenment time. And, and so in the field of history, everything was looked at with a critical and skeptical eye and rewritten um, with a rigor that attempted to exclude superstition, legend, myth, or what they considered propagandizing of lies. That was how, that's how they, so previous to the Enlightenment, here's their argument, previous to the Enlightenment, his, and it's also somewhat tr um, true in some areas, history had been written with some kind of agenda in mind. The evidence and the facts were washed through a, um, the propagation of a god or morals or a, a nation, a, a national history, so to speak. But it was done in service to those things. History was written to show God working out his purposes or fate working out some impersonal principle or morals um, working itself out in the affairs of the human race and so on. Or how this king was better than this king and how good triumphed evil over here and all of those types of things. History had an agenda. It had a scheme. I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> of course you don't. Um, real history was also written, by the way. But it was um, kind of adulterated with propaganda and gossip with what people, with controlling the masses, with controlling people. So in the Enlightenment, all of this changed. They decided, no, nope, we're not. Historians took a hard look at the well-known fact that people continue to lie. <laughs> and they will continue to lie, no matter how scholarly they are, or in what religious pursuit they are, or wh where they are in life. We, we, 
We come up with our own narratives that suit us best, to make us look better, to make others look worse, to make one nation look better, to make others look worse, to put out God out there so that we can, all of those things, there's, it's kind of a, messed with, with uh, history. So the new historians, I'll call them, ask the question, how would these old histories read if we took all that stuff out? How would they read if we just stuck with what was going on? If we took out, if we took into account these tendencies to propagandize for a cause or gossip about miracles or the supernatural, how would history now look if we just annexed all, if we just gutted it from all, from all of those things? And chapter, in the Enlightenment, chapter after chapter of history was rewritten according to these critical methods. And the benefits... There were some benefits. The benefits was the knowledge of what it means to be human extended back through many cultures and many civilizations over time. It was actually super helpful in that, in that kind of a way. The con, I think the con of this, is that sometimes the new historian merely substituted new ideological standards, namely scientific objectivity, in place of old ones, divine inspiration. In other words, scientific objectivity did and still does intimidates people just to believe it because it's, the, it's scientifically objective. That's the new God of the day. So now people, they still just, just as blindly believe what they, what they hear just for different reasons. We've just swapped it out. So scholarly objectivity in the Enlightenment era made people uncritical they uncritically accepted quite, uh, you know, just about as much ideas as people under the divine inspiration had done. Well, by the 19th century, post-enlightenment, these methods were brought to bear on the biblical accounts of history. For a while, no one messed with them. They were divinely inspired, authoritative, and that kind of, kind of kept the dogs at bay for a while. But by the 19th century... The belief that the scriptures were divinely inspired and therefore authoritative, um, they had exempted them from historical critical examination for a century or so, but not anymore. They can't hide anymore. Um, the, the most famous reconstruction of the biblical history is by a man, a man named Julius Wellhausen. Julius Wellhausen, as a result of his, his reconstruction, the Psalms, here's the particular issue at hand, the Psalms, the prayers, David's prayers, Hebrew prayers, they lost their central importance and ended up on the edges of biblical history, particularly at the very end as kind of like an afterthought. Up to this point, and this is where we get into the the cemeteries and the ancestors of Christian history, up to this point, the Psalms had been the very center of the action. The Psalms had inspired great enthusiasm and interest into a power, a supernatural power from God into the affairs of mankind. It's what makes Hebrew and ancient thought very different than Greek thought. And, you know, the Greeks, Greek, they're great at telling stories. They're the great, greatest storytellers in the world. And, but even when they're telling stories, it's about, about gods. It's about human nature. It's about some moral about what it means to be human. Hebrews, by, uh, by contrast, they, were interested in, they weren't interested in the human story. They were interested in God's story and how they fit into that. 
See? Very different. And the prayers reflected that. David thought that way. Um, but Wellhausen described Hebrew history differently. He saw it in this enlightenment view. He saw Hebrew history in three stages, if you're interested to know. I think, I think you will be interested to know. In the first stage, he saw its beginnings shrouded in what he called prehistory. In other words, um, legendary Abraham kind of clumsily groped his way through the shadows of superstition and child sacrifice, kind of this prehistoric thing, crude tribal cults in Palestine, murderous fanatics, gradually evolved into some semblance of a civilization. Sometime, at some point. It's kind of foggy, he would say. Picking up, they picked up bits, bits and pieces of morality from their more advanced neighbors, the Egyptians and the Babylonians, and finally they started to coagulate and become a people of a historically ver, verified people group. And stories developed uh, around old physical features, landscape, natural disasters that were giving a, given a moral and spiritual kind of tilt. Kind of, kind of flavor to them as they were told. Interpretations of divine or demonic powers were all within the storytelling. And through the centuries, out of this melting pot of kind of drift, nomadic drifters, finally something like a nation gradually emerged and a nation with a penchant for talking about God. That's what he would say. That's the first stage of biblical history. Second stage was the prophetic. And this would be the center for Wellhausen. Out of this unpromising kind of nomadic prehistoric milieu, something truly ex spectacular, according to Wellhausen, exploded onto the scene, and that would be the prophetic movement. Guys like Amos, Isaiah, Jeremiah, guys that were passionate in their monotheism. And they were very moral and they were all about justice and they had this burning vision for right and wrong and, and all of this. That the world did not see, according to Wellhausen, the world had not seen anything like it. This strong, passionate cry to defeat evil. That's where the action was. And then the third phase I'll describe as the fizzle. It kind of fizzled out. The third stage came, and after a series of military disasters through the Assyrians and the Babylonians and terrible exile to Babylon, the Hebrews were oppressed and demoralized. They'd lost their political identity, and, and the prophetic mo uh, movement began to lose momentum. With the disappearance of the prophets, and um, kind of a spiritual um, lassitude kind of came over the nation and the people of Israel. They declined into a people who all they could do then was just tell stories of the good old days with some nostalgia and pray. They're defeated, so all, what, what else? It kind of the, his idea is what else can we do but tell stories of the good old days and then pray that they come back. Tell stories of the good old days and then pray. What else can we do? The Psalms then are those kind of prayers. Prayers that are reminiscing of the good old days, but really lack a lot of power. You know? They are the pious residue of a once vigorous faith fizzled out. 
the powerful, passionate, life-changing, society-forming energy of the prophets. Now that's what we're after. That's where, that's where we get stuff done. Prophetic teachers that are out there, you know, talking about injustice in society, stirring up people to action. That's the Christianity that the West was built on. We like, we like to get stuff done. What are we going to do about it? And as a result of Wellhausen's history, at the end of the century, a famous book um, in 1899 by uh, Bernard Doom was published. Um, a, it was a commentary on the Psalms, and he famously dated them during the Maccabean period, 167 to 30-ish BC. Very, very late in history, right? Butted up right against the New Testament era with the single exception, by the way, of the exilic Psalm 137. And his work was backed by by one of the leading scholars on on the Psalms. He backed him and said, yeah, I think that's true. And that changed everything. At that point forward, we began to look at the Psalms on the periphery. Later came after defeat, kind of a whine more than a victory. Like, oh, I remember what it used to be. Could it be that way again? Like that type of a thing. And with the Psalms so regarded historically, prayer in general did not long escape the same fate. The idea of prayer. If this is the place of prayer in the historical development of our faith, it's not going to attract a large following among people who want to do something about the evil that they see. That's what the prophets are for. The person we prefer to watch and emulate is the prophet, the doer. The most vigorous expression of a biblical ministry is prophetic preaching. Even now, a lot of times we go to churches. Do we go to churches because they pray? When when you're shopping for a church in the West, do you go online and you peruse their websites and look for how how powerful their prayer ministry is? Now, typically what you do is you look at that. Well, if if you're a family, if you've got a family, you look at what happens with kids. Where do they go? It's just totally reasonable. Do they leave the site? Are they accessible? What's the check-in? How are they protected? All of those things. But right after that, typically you listen to maybe a sound clip from the pastor. How good is this guy? Maybe the music. How dynamic is it? You look at the people. Are they having fun? Are they, are they what, what are we doing for community? Are there home groups? Are there places to go? All, all of those types of things we look at. L- last on the list maybe, or maybe close to the end, do we, do we even, or do we even think about, do, does this church pray? The Psalms are nice. <laughs> They're nice. They're nice as text to anthems and mottos like, you know, that you would hang on your wall. Prayer is useful at the end of the day to calm your frazzled spirit and compose yourself for a good night's rest. Now I lay me down to sleep. Pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I shall die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Hmm. Snuggle in with my warm glass of milk. That's my thing. But, you know, today, if prophecy is the steak and potatoes of religion, prayer is the warm glass of milk to encourage tranquil sleep. That's what it's become. But then something unexpected happened that I need to tell you about, which is really interesting. 
this Norwegian guy. Woot woot! Any Norwegians in the house? I knew there was. This Norwegian scholar named Sigmund, Sigmund Mowinkle. You get the Norwegians are like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Sigmund Mowinkle was comparing the study of, of Hebrew worship, Hebrews at worship, with early Teutonic tribes in ancient um, Europe. He, it was actually a, a non-biblical kind of study. It wasn't about this whole is, I, I, issue of history. The two studies of the Hebrews at prayer and the Teutonans at prayer proved they just, I'll, I'll save you the nerdy stuff about it, but it completely reversed everything that Wellhausen had ever thought. It, they, in fact, it basically proved to the scholarly world that Wellhausen had been dead wrong. Um, when the people gathered to join, he found that when the people gathered to join their prayers in the act of worship, that this act was neither haphazard or peripheral. It wasn't like a quick prayer at the end or in the beginning of a service. Um, it was actually dramatic and basic. It was completely formative to everything that they did. And he was able to go back and compare this to Hebrew culture and find that it was the same exact way. That, that prayer was actually the center of everything they did, of how they formed their identity, of how they led their people, of how they raised their kids. Everything was revolved around prayer and the power of prayer. Wellhausen viewed prophecy as the creative wellspring in Israel. That's where the creativity and the chutzpah and the strength came from. But the work of Mowinkle showed the opposite. He said it was the Psalms that were like the artesian originals. The prayer and worship, the prayer and worship um, was the seedbed of prophecy and power. Prayer initiated, prophecy came out of it, he showed. And he was able to prove it, and it completely reversed everything. Here's my point in this long rant. <laughs> the Psalms provide the language, the aspiration, the energy for the community as it comes together in prayer. And they then call into being our identity. They're, for, they're formative for activities like standing up against injustice, raising our children, leading a people, all of those types of things. And yet, they go and we don't. When I was interviewing with the, uh, the then elder board at the time, no one asked me what my prayer life was like. Look, it's not, I don't, know, I don't know of many elder boards that would even think of it in our, in our culture. It's what prayer has become. I'm not blaming them. They ask all sorts of other pertinent questions. But it's interesting to me as I was studying this, prayer, this is, this is according to this text, this is the most basic thing for a leader. David prayed. The source of his dynamic War and success against the Philistines came out of his prayer. He was a praying man. He, he was dependent on God. He asked God. Yes, he was good at these other things. Yes, he was a warrior. But don't our eyes, our western eyes kind of read over David inquired of the Lord. And we go right to the battle. Then he routed the Philistines. We kind of just whoop, read over it. That's the all caps that the, that the author wanted us to see. David paused 
and inquired of God, should I do this? The implications of this should be obviously plain at this point. All victory in our life begins with prayer. I mean, that's just really the quick way of saying everything that I just said. All victory in our life, all sense of growth, all sense of flourishing, all sense of taking ground in our lives explodes out of prayer. Anything creative that you want to do, that you need, anything powerful, Anything, I'll even say this, anything biblical, insofar as we are participants in it, originates in prayer. Christians who imitate the moral actions of the prophets, let me just get even stronger. Christians who imitate the moral action of the prophets without also imitating the prophets' deep prayer and worship are unbiblical, are not following the biblical model. We want to get right to the results. We have, and, and prayer is something, is, by the way, that people did together. They did it apart. They did it individually. But they also would get together and they would pray together. I would love for us to think of the song time, not as song time, but as a corporate singing prayer time. We're communicating as Calvary Wallingford to God together and it's powerful our kids need to see it our kids don't need to see that we we come here and we consume it our kids need to see that we are participants whether you can sing or not it really isn't as important as participating in some way your body language your mind your heart entering into the presence of God as an act of communion a back and forth a conversation between us corporately us and God we need to see prayer as an important part not just a a rub-a-dub-dub thanks for the grub yay God before we eat And I'm telling you, this isn't something we should just should do. I mean, I think a lot of sermons on prayer just end there. We should pray. I'm saying we're missing out on a whole nother gear of power, flourishing, goodness when we don't spend time. Um, think of Jesus, and then I'll move on. Then we'll, we'll, go, we'll, 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 we'll move on to the Bible. Okay, think of Jesus here. What did Jesus encounter? The worst of humanity. Think of where would, okay, let me, let, let's do this. Where would Jesus be in Seattle? Is Richard here? Did he leave? Richard drives a bus. He drives the E-Line on Aurora. Any of you Seattleites, you know that Aurora is the, uh, arguably, the most, if you want to see Seattle depravity, just drive down Aurora. Richard does this. He drives the E-Line bus back and forth, back and forth for nine hours every day. And not only that, there he is, and not only that, I'm talking about you, man. 
Not only that, Aurora gets on his bus every few seconds. Like when we drive down Aurora and we look out and we see the homelessness, the poverty, the prostitutes, all of that, it's spiritually traumatizing, isn't it? I find myself naturally wanting to avoid that street because it just, not because I'm, I, I don't like them, it hurts me. It's grieving to see this. But Richard, that, they get on his bus. And we were talking about this yesterday. That is where Jesus would be. How, and I thought, no wonder the scriptures recorded that Jesus got away often to pray. No wonder. And no wonder Jesus changed this world. Because he was out there loving with power that he got from prayer with his father. The son of David was out there loving people, healing people, bearing with people that my soul naturally wants to avoid. Jesus was there. What was the source of it? He was, Jesus is, yeah, he's God. He's also human. What was the source of his strength? He would get away often and just be with his father. prayer we skip over it we say well he's God if I was God I'd walk on water too if I was God I would you know all that. No, no no he he led a model for us prayer okay secondly not only was David a praying leader but he was a leader who um, I would want to argue with you knew the Bible and knew it really well he knew his place in redemptive history and he knew Israel's place in redemptive history and because of that, he knew where to lead them. He knew what they should do. He knew what they were, he knew what they were about. He knew what he needed to do. Let me just, let, let me read verse six through 10 to you. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land who said to David, who, you will not come in here. Even the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David won't be able to make it. He, won't, he can't come in here. It's too fortified. And it was, by the way. Um, nevertheless, David's the type of guy that doesn't, you know, David's this guy, this warrior in the wilderness. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't, it's like a challenge accepted for David. So David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David, and David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said, the blind kind of became proverbial, the blind and the lame shall not come into the, into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the, from the millow inward. And David became, great, uh, became greater and greater because the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Okay, although the text doesn't tell us his reasoning, there are a few things that we can surmise of why David, this is his first act as king. His first act as king, you, you think that's important. You know, when we, when we have a transition of power and we have a new president, we often wonder, I wonder what's the first thing he's going to do, right? 
Same thing would be happening here. David finally gets a unified kingdom and the first thing that he does is go off against the Jebusites to take this city to make it his capital. Why would that be? And there's a few practical reasons. For one, it would have been Jerusalem's location. It was in a great location on a major trading route, high, highly elevated, hard, hard to attack, easy to fortify. He could build it up. He saw a lot of potential in that city, no doubt about it. It's just a great spot. Secondly, this, there would have been a, maybe a political reason. Um, the Jebusites, this was in the land of Benjamin. This is King Saul's tribe. And this might have been a way for David to, to, um, to allure more loyalty from the tribe of Benjamin, away from Saul and back to David himself. By the way, there's these troubling verses where David says, I hate the lame I hate the, you know, my, the, the lame and the blind my soul hates. Well, what he's saying is, I mean, I hope you, you caught it there. What he's saying is, is that if you guys are the lame and the blind that can hold me out, well, then I'm going to, you, you're who my soul hates. He's talking about the Jebusites. He's playing on their own language, their own taunts. Um, we know this because in a few chapters from here, we're going to see David's incredible kindness to a lame person named Mephibosheth. He doesn't hate all lame people. That's not the point. He's coming against the Jebusites here. Um, but there are some biblical reasons as to why David would choose this city. I think that shows that David was very familiar with the biblical story and his role in it. First, in Genesis chapter 14, do you remember... Abram's nephew Lot has been caught up in this confederate war of confederate kings on both sides and they descend on Sodom and Gomorrah and in the fighting Lot gets carried away as a slave. Abram hears of this and so he gathers about 300 or so of his own employees essentially his own men for his household and they do this like guerrilla warfare kind of tactics against these these confederate armies and they win and they and he rescues his nephew lot it's a fantastic story he has complete defeat and these other kings on the other side they come and they they thank abraham abram at the time they thank you for doing this and this one really mysterious guy shows up do you remember his name Melchizedek. Melchizedek shows up. Who He's just really interesting. He has no... Uh, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews in the New Testament will tell us he has no beginning genealogy and has no end. There's no re- record of his birth or his death or his family. He just kind of is this representative of an eternal type of household. He shows up. He's the priest of the Most High God, Yahweh, And he's also the king of Jerusalem. Really interesting. And here's what's more interesting. Abraham, out of all of these kings, Abraham pays homage to this king and actually gives him a tithe. Gives 10% of the spoil to this king Melchizedek. And then he just vanishes. Later, David will pen in Psalm 110, I think, or maybe it's not David, but in Psalm 110, um, his name will come back up again that David's line will be, a, will be a priestly, the messianic line will be a line after the, after the line of Melchizedek. 
this priest-king type of guy. David's fixated on this city, Jerusalem. Uh, Moving forward, the very next chapter in Genesis 15, God tells Abraham that about his, him and his descendants. Let me read this to you. This is God. He said, On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, here's the promise. This, David knows the story. To your offspring, I will give this land. From the river Egypt to the, to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the, here they are, Jebusites, they're the ones, they're one of the people groups, this kind of offset of Canaan that Israel was supposed to run out. They're one of these these people. And then fast forward to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, God repeats the plan. He says, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you that you have been, what's been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I'm going to bring you up out of the, uh, the affliction of Egypt. Here we go. To the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Parasites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then, let me just leapfrog to Judges chapter 1. Listen, this is, here's where we get to David. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. That's the Anakins. But the people of Benjamin, listen, the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. The Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this very day. In other words, to the writing of Judges chapter 1 verse 20, they failed to drive out the Jebusites out of Jerusalem. So why did David choose Jerusalem? Well, because he was familiar with the orders from on high of what Israel was supposed to do there in the land. And he looked and said, this is unfinished business. I know what I need to do. I need to do what my forebears failed to do. I need to drive out the Jebusites out of the land. That's what God said. That's the story. And I know where I'm at in the story. David was familiar with the scriptures that Moses had written down. Trivia trivia question. Does anybody know where the first reference of the written word in the word of God is? Where's the first mention of writing down the Bible in the story of the Bible? It's a great fact to pull out at a party if you want want to know. If you want to win friends. It's Exodus 17. It's the first mention where God says to Moses, write this down. And here's the reason behind it. Why would he write it down? He says, so that you can, you, so that you don't forget. There was this divine deliverance out of, out of the Amalekites, this divine deliverance. God showed up. It's the story where Moses holds his hands up and if he drops them, they start to lose and if, they, if he keeps them raised, they, they keep winning and so Caleb and, and uh, uh, Joshua held up his hands or maybe it was somebody else. And he says, write this down so that generations will see that I'm, I'm here for you, that you don't forget. That's, Okay, that's why do we have a Bible? 
Well, according to the Bible, the reason we have a Bible is so that we remember our story and we don't forget. Because we have a tendency to forget, don't we? So it's written down. That's, that's the thing. Well, David clearly knew it. He had read it. So his first act as king was fulfilling Israel's God-given place and what his predecessors had failed to do. And what David does here in Jerusalem is forever branded into the Israelites' consciousness as something the Lord himself will do later, eschatologically in the future. In other words, this is how, this is how the son of David will also save. So, um, you know how the Exodus became a model of the Lord's salvation. Well, here, this event also becomes a model of how God saves. In other words, this is what the prophets expect, how David did this. Let me just read this to you. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. It says, The word of the Lord came to the son of Amaz, to Isaiah, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days. In other words, this is how God will save us later in the future. That the mountain of the house of the Lord, that's Mount Zion. By the way, 2 Samuel 5 is the first place in Scripture that we find the word Zion. Okay? Um, it shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it. What do we see in 2 Samuel chapter 5? Tyre and other nations. Now these Gentile nations are now giving David cedar and money to build it up and to build palaces. So there's this, finally, these Gentile nations are recognizing Israel finally as a viable government. Isaiah says that's what's going to happen in the future. And shall be lifted up above the hills. Come, the nations around are going to say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. Um, for out of Zion shall go forth the law. That's the Torah. Out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This is Hebrew parallelism. Zion and Jerusalem are synonymous in this passage. He shall judge between the nations, just like David is doing, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. You see, Isaiah, what is he doing? He's looking back at this time. 2 Samuel 5 through 10, this time of triumph and peace and no more war and, and defeating of enemies and nations coming to, to Israel and to this Davidic king. Isaiah is saying, someday, that's what's going to happen on the world stage. In other words, my point is, the, and this goes to Revelation 21, the reason we Christians are looking forward to the new Jerusalem is precisely because of what David did here. It becomes a prophetic, like I said, eschatological idea. That is, a theology of the, of, how, of, of the end times. Where's the story going? Where are we headed? We're heading to a new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven in Revelation 21. This garden city. David is like a new 
Adam, who's called to cultivate someplace wild into a civilized place for society to flourish. That's what a city is, by the way. It's the ultimate cultivation of something wild into a place where we all flourish. There's more opportunities here. There's more, all of those. That's why the Bible's gonna set up a, a tale of two cities. There's the city of Zion, Jerusalem, against the city of Babylon, which is a city, or Babel, a city, a civilized, flourishing place, except without God. Humanism. Jerusalem wins in the end. Spoiler alert. Look at Micah says the same thing. He says, in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame. Notice the language. And gather those who have been driven away and those who have been afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant. And those who were cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them at Mount Zion. Who is David ruling over here? The lame is in this. Um, And those who were cast off, a strong nation. For this time, forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock. Shepherd language. Hill of the daughter of Zion. To you shall it come. The former dominion shall come. Kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. He's talking about a future Davidic king. And when Jesus came the first time, instead of, he conquered the lame and the blind, all right, because he conquered their hearts with his love, with his grace. This is where it's going. David, and finally, and quickly, David, unlike Saul, he knew he was blessed that he could bless Israel. Verse 12, we'll end with this. David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. For God so loved the world that he gave. David was not a perfect leader. We understand that. But he was a man after God's own heart and he knew that his place in history was to give to others. Here's the thing. Um, Jesus, likewise, got his strength from prayer. He got his strength from prayer. And he got his strength from prayer. He had the authority of the scriptures and understood, Jesus understood his place in history, in redemptive history. And because of that, he was able to lead. And finally, Jesus, like David, he used his power to give rather than to take. This is the ministry model of shepherding. Any power or influence that you have is for the people that you're leading. As a a pastor, as elders of our church, we do not think of it as a way of hoarding some kind of authority or, or anything like that. It's more, we're here to facilitate your growth. We're here to give and we take it really seriously. The skills that we've acquired, the degrees that we might have or are trying to get, it's not for some bragging right thing. It's to do a good job to give to you, to build you up, to do a good job in leading you, in protecting you, in providing for you, because that's what he's done for us. That's what a shepherd does. A shepherd provides. 
protects and leads, and he does it because he or she is a man or woman of prayer. They read the Bible. This is the behind the scenes stuff. Another thing, the elders didn't ask me when I applied, how often do you read the Bible? I think it's probably just assumed, you know, right? But gosh, you can, you can go online and become a pastor these days. Go to a website, you can have an ordination printed right on out for you. It doesn't mean you read or pray. Fortunately, it might not even mean you're a Christian. Gosh. And finally, the person in leadership knows that I'm in leadership to serve. I'm not here to be served, I'm here to serve. Amen.